This evening I want to continue the talk on uh, the nature of awareness that we started last night. But before I get into the content, I just want to mention uh, something about today. You may have noticed some orange-robed gentlemen wandering around the place this afternoon. Some of you saw them, some of you may not have. We had a visit from three monks, so we were visiting with them over at Joseph's house for a little bit, and then they took a tour of the forest refuge. And the senior monk was Ajahn Sumedho. He's been staying at a branch monastery uh, in New Hampshire that's a little over an hour away. And he thought that as long as he's in the neighborhood, he'd like to come by and visit with Joseph. So Joseph invited Sally and me uh, to join them. Sally and I have had a relationship with Ajahn Sumedho for a long time. I first met him when he came to IMS in around 78 or 79. And then when we were living in England, we had the chance to meet with him and we practiced with him on different retreats. He's been an important teacher for both of us. So it was just lovely today to be able to visit and then show him a little bit of this facility. You know, sorry if any of the talking and visiting disturbed your silence, but it's a very, very uh, venerable an esteemed teacher. He's one of the few people that I regard as a Western master. But I definitely put him in that category. So his, uh, his teachings uh, are highly recommended in books and many talks on the website. Are wonderful to listen to. And he talks a lot about the quality of awareness. I think his most recent book was called Intuitive Awareness. But it was interesting in... Um, in chatting, and uh, we got him to talking about some of his early years of practice. Uh, it was not this nice in the early <laughs> years of his practice. He was the first Western disciple of Ajahn Chah, practiced at Wat Bapong before Ajahn Chah became famous and before it was very well known or very well supported. So the food was very simple, the accommodations were, were rough. And uh, he talked about Ajahn Chah giving five-hour Dharma talks in the evening, and he would have to sit quietly, basically on a concrete floor covered by a thin mat, through the five hours of the Dharma talk. And then he decided to uh, take a more ascetic route for a while. (laughs) That was not quite challenge enough. And so he asked Ajahn Chah if he could go practice at this remote a mountain facility. It was a beautiful spot, but it was way off the beaten track, um, way out in the country, on top of a mountain, there's a little hut. And you had to walk a couple of miles off the road and then ascend on ladders at times up to the top of the mountain. And then it was beautiful, natural, unspoiled. So he stayed there for about six months practicing. And of course, there was not a teacher there who spoke any English, so he was really on his own. And the food was very, uh, the word he used was coarse. I would take that as an understatement. Insects were a staple part of the diet in that part of rural Thailand at the time. And there probably wasn't a lot besides rice that was offered to him. And while he was there, he got very ill. He came down with malaria. And malaria, if you haven't heard it described as a really awful disease with fever and shaking and you feel really terrible. So he got malaria and of course way out in the rural mountains there was no doctor around. So he was just kind of struggling through this malaria, coarse food, and he said swarming flies that would fly into his nose and ears all day long. He was almost too tired and weak to bat them away. Finally, he said, um, he was taken down the mountain. He couldn't get down the mountain on his own. He was taken down the mountain, by carried by two men, uh, probably from the village nearby. And they were going to arrange for him to get to a doctor. But meanwhile, while he was waiting, this voice came to him and it said, practice Anapanasati. So even in his weak condition, he sat up and he began paying attention to the breath at the nose, 
focused all the energy he could, all the attention he could on that experience. And he said in a week he was cured. And then he lived with Ajahn Chah for another few years in Thailand before coming to the West to establish Amravati Monastery and now many branch monasteries here. So it was wonderful to see him. He was reflecting that even though the early years of his practice were very difficult, he doesn't remember the pain of it now. But what he's really grateful for is how he's transformed his heart and mind. And now he lives with this great cheerfulness, happiness, contentment from his deep Dharma insight. So I find that a really inspiring reminder. Your time here will go through ups and downs and it will be challenging and it will be difficult at times emotionally and physically. And years later, you won't remember that part. (laughs) You'll be so grateful for all the openness that you've brought into your mind as a result of your dedication to practice. So it was wonderful to see him and a real uplift for, for our day. So... The nature of awareness. We had gotten to the point in the talk last night where we were talking about the mind's nature as having these three aspects. The essence is emptiness. The function is awareness or cognizance. And its capacity, its potential is responsiveness. That is, when it rests, it has the potential to bring out these beautiful qualities, love, wisdom, patience, equanimity, compassion, and so forth. In the whole tradition of Buddhism, and this came several hundred years after the death of the Buddha, these combinations were first outlined by a later Buddhist school in India known as the Yogacara school. And this combination of the three qualities, emptiness, cognizance, and responsiveness, as defining or describing the nature of mind, came to be known as Buddha nature. So you may have heard this term, Buddha nature. This is, this is what it means. It means the nature of our mind is composed of emptiness, cognizance, and responsiveness. Now, I think Buddha nature is not the best translation of the earlier Sanskrit term. The earlier term is Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata, you may know, is one of the names. It's the name the Buddha usually uh, used to refer to himself. It's a Pali word also. And Garbha means womb in uh, Sanskrit. So Tathagata Garbha literally means the womb of the Buddhas. So this nature that we all have is the womb from which awakening comes. And that is to say that each of us has this nature as the seed of awakening within us. Every human being has this as our potential this nature. So I like, the, I like thinking of it as a womb because that shows it as a potential, whereas when you call it uh, Buddha nature, it sounds like it's an existent thing within us. But it's our potential in this nature of mind. So the question is, did the Buddha talk about this in the Pali discourses? In his time, did he talk about these qualities? And I have to say, not exactly. But there are some hints that kind of lean in this direction. Let's take a look at a couple in the study guide. On page 11, read quotation 65. This mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant, but it is obscured by visiting defilements. The untaught ordinary person does not understand this as it really is, so for them there is no development of mind. This mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant and it is freed from visiting defilements. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is, so for them there is development of mind. 
So the Buddha is pointing to the radiance of the mind, which is a synonym for the luminosity, clarity, cognizance that we talked about last night. So here's a pointing to the luminosity of mind, similar to this later description. And then one that um, I find even more suggestive is the one just above it, quotation 64. So some, someone has come to the Buddha who's not a, a follower, but he's asking a, what to him is an important question. He says, um, where are the four elements destroyed? Meaning the physical world, the physical world composed of the four elements, where are they destroyed? And the Buddha says, that's not the right question. Because that implies kind of getting rid of existence. The Buddha says the right question is, where do they find no footing? Which is a way of saying, where are they not made solid and substantial and land? Where do they not, where can they not land? So he rephrases the question and then he answers it. And the second line of the question, I don't want to get into tonight because it's too, it's too long an explanation. But he rephrases it, where do earth, water, fire, and air, the four elements, find no footing? Where are name and form completely destroyed? Don't worry about that. He says, where consciousness is signless, boundless, luminous all around, that is where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. Their name and form are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. So the key line is where consciousness is signless, boundless, luminous all around. Does this remind you of the way we've been practicing? Here he's using the word consciousness, vijnana, not as tied to one particular sense, but in this broader way that we've been using the word awareness. So we could say where awareness is signless, boundless, luminous all around. Okay, the signless part means it doesn't have any form or color. It doesn't make an appearance of its own. Does awareness have any form or color? Can you pin it down and say, it's like this? No. Awareness is signless. It doesn't have a characteristic like that. So this is the empty aspect of awareness, where it's boundless. This is also pointing to the nature of awareness as um, like the empty sky, reaching on and on and on, the vastness of awareness. And then luminous all around. Again, luminosity is a synonym for cognizance. Empty, vast, cognizant. This is very much like the Buddha nature that we've just been looking into. This can become a meditation instruction even if you want to follow the Pali discourses. Get in touch with that kind of awareness that is empty, vast, and luminous. That's where earth, water, fire, and air don't find a footing. And you've been describing this to us. Sense objects don't land in a solid way when you're exploring this nature of awareness. They're felt, they're known, they arise, but then they pass away. Arise and pass away. Arise and pass away. I sometimes feel it like when I'm in this nature of awareness practice, All the objects of the senses are still coming and going, but they can't get a foothold. They don't land anywhere. And it's almost like they touch up against this factor of awareness and then they just fall away. They touch up and fall away. Objects arise and pass because awareness is so clear. It holds them all, but it doesn't incline to the grasping that would make them feel solid or make them land. So this is a pointing from the Buddha's own discourses to the kind of mind that we've been practicing with here, the kind of awareness. So this nature is in each of us, emptiness, cognizance, responsiveness. 
It's in all beings. So, is it permanent or impermanent? So in the Pali Canon, it's very clear that sense consciousness is impermanent. The knowing of an object arises with the object. When the object falls away, the knowing of it falls away. They come up together, they fall away together. And the Buddha makes this really clear in the discourses. It's one of the five aggregates. All five aggregates are impermanent. But what about this field of awareness? Does it feel to you like it's coming and going? Or in this field, does it feel like there's something ongoing? Something that's not subject to momentary arising, passing, arising, passing, arising, passing. So the early Buddhist schools said there's only one element, only one Dhamma that's not subject to impermanence. And that's Nibbana. Termed in one of the suttas, the everlasting. Everything else comes and goes, comes and goes. What about this field that's empty, cognizant, responsive? Is it coming and going? So, this question's been debated in Buddhist circles for about 1,500 years. We're probably not going to resolve it tonight. But I think it's interesting to consider the possibility of something about this field being ongoing. So, I don't know if you remember from the talk last night, I asked, sensations are being known, known by what? In other words, is there something behind consciousness that's doing the knowing? And we said, let's explore that and call it mind. So what we're suggesting here, what the tradition, the later tradition is suggesting, not the Pali discourses, is that this thing called mind, which is Buddha nature, is not subject to a rising passing, but is in some way always there. So the question is, is awareness part of the unconditioned? Is it related to Nibbana? Is this thing called mind synonymous with Nibbana? Or another way to say it is, does Nibbana have an aspect of knowing as part of it? So there are different views on this question. Some schools say, yeah, Other schools say, no, that's delusion. That's a big fake news. (laughs) And because the Buddha never said it explicitly, you know, there's grounds for saying, no, 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 it's not like that. But if you look at your own experience, you might feel there's something ongoing that you might say is the source of this awareness. So different schools have different views on it. And we don't have to settle it tonight, but I want to suggest a way that we could see it that reconciles these two. Many of you are familiar with this. We're going to do a little thought experiment where we go out to the edge of our solar system. So we're out in space. We got a spacesuit. We can breathe. And our back is to the sun. But we're on the edge, so we're not seeing other planets. And we're looking just out into space. And let's say for the sake of argument, we can make this up. We're looking into a part of the sky where there aren't any stars. Sun is behind us, looking out into space, no stars. What do you see? It's dark, isn't it? It's just blackness out there. So is it the black that comes from a black Crayola or black spray paint? Or is it the black that's the absence of light? Just the absence of light, isn't it? No light coming to our eyes because we're looking at a part of the sky, the space, doesn't have any stars. 
So we don't see any light. But is there light there? Your back's to the sun. You're on the edge of the solar system. Is there light in front of you? Yeah. The sun's light is pervading. Your shadow is negligible. The sun's light is pervading that space, but we don't see it. Okay? Now, imagine that a meteor shoots by in front of you, comes up from below, it whizzes by. Do you see it? You do, don't you? Because the sunlight reflects off it back to your eyes. But then it's gone. So this is an analogy for what may be happening with something that's ongoing and something that's impermanent. So the analogy is the sunlight pervading empty space is the radiance of Buddha nature, of the nature of mind. It's always there. Doesn't, not really subject to a rising and passing. Sunlight is always there. When the meteor flashes by and there's the light reflected to our eyes just for a moment, that's the illumination of a sense object that is impermanent. So that's the analogy for consciousness. So the sunlight pervading empty space, Buddha nature, ongoing, not subject to impermanence. The flash of light that comes off the meteor comes and goes, that is consciousness that knows that particular object so briefly. One of the things I find interesting about this analogy is that it can reconcile the two views. Something ongoing in the nature of mind and something impermanent in the flash of consciousness. The other thing I find interesting is that it's the same light in both cases. One is reflected and momentary, the other is pervading and ongoing. It's the same luminosity, or you could say cognizance. So in a way, it's saying that we're holding that light all the time, but the only way we see it is when it reflects off a sense object, the knowing of a sense object is what brings it home to us. So this, um, this analogy suggests that the, the cognizance and the emptiness and the responsiveness that are part of the nature of mind are ongoing. And you could almost say that the light pervading empty space is the unborn because it doesn't have any shape, doesn't have any color. We don't notice it. But as soon as it illuminates something, it then shows up shape and color. Suzuki Roshi uh, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind has this very nice line. He says, it is necessary for us to believe in something that has no form or color, but is always ready to take on form and color. This is Buddha nature. It itself, we can't find form and color, but it's always ready to take on form and color. And this um, connection with the unborn is very interesting. Um, There's a beautiful quotation in the Udana about the unborn that goes like this. There is this unborn, unbecome, unproduced, unconditioned. If there were not this unborn, unbecome, unproduced, unconditioned, there would be no escape from what is born, become, produced, conditioned. But because there is this unborn, unbecome, unproduced, unconditioned, an escape can be seen from what is born, become, produced, and conditioned. So the unborn is pointing to the deathless. What isn't born doesn't die. This is a synonym for Nibbana, that which is unborn and unconditioned. 
provides the escape from what is born and conditioned, the relief from the field of suffering. So not only is this um, found in the later Buddhist schools from India, but it's also found within the Thai forest tradition. So we can also look on uh, page 11 at quotation number 70. This is from Ajahn Jumnian, a Thai forest teacher who's still alive. He says, the best way to develop a great awareness, and the actual term he used, this was a conversation he was having with the teachers at Spirit Rock some years ago. Jack was translating. And Jack was the one who said, well, the word he used for great awareness was mahasati, great mindfulness. We'll use great awareness. The best way to develop a great awareness is to rest your attention within that knowing space of consciousness in the pure space of knowing. If you understand and can rest in this pure knowing, that is the place of the deathless. From this pure consciousness that's unmoved by what arises, then you see the phenomena of the world, which all have the nature to arise and pass away. Phenomena show their dharmas of impermanence, and this other is the dharma of the deathless. I like that he says the pure space of knowing because that's one of the things we talked about, about awareness. It's purity. It's not affected by the kilesas. It doesn't mind the kilesas. It doesn't acquire them. They don't stain it. Consciousness has a purity when we can tune into it and recognize it. And then it's not giving rise to birth and death. That's why it's a place of the deathless. Phenomena come and go. This other is the Dharma of the deathless. And then even more explicitly on that same page is the quotation from Ajahn Mahabua, number 68. Ajahn Bua is another great Thai forest master. He died a few years ago. And in his book, Straight from the Heart, He gives an account of his meditation experience leading up to basically a declaration of his arahantship. This is very interesting and very rare because mostly monks don't describe their arahantship. And he doesn't call it that. But if you read the account of his meditations, you know that's what's going on in his estimation. Although all phenomena without exception fall under the laws of the three characteristics impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, the true nature of the mind doesn't fall under these laws. The natural power of the mind itself is that it knows and does not die. This deathlessness is something that lies beyond disintegration. This is very interesting. You know, personally, I find this inspiring because it suggests that as we connect with consciousness, as we connect with awareness, we're linking back to this thing that is undying, that is the deathless, that is the avenue to liberation. So you might start to get a sense for that as you practice. I don't know if you have read Joseph's book um, called One Dharma. But he became um, very intensely occupied with this question of which view is right when he first started being exposed to the view that the nature of mind may be undying. Because all his training in the Burmese tradition was there's nothing beyond consciousness. It's all impermanent and that's it. And so he was really wrestling with this dilemma for a while in his practice and it became, it got, had him in, his, in its grip. And he explains how he sort of resolved it in um, his own understanding as understanding that both of these views were skillful means. And he could use the view without coming to a solid belief about which one was right. And that was his way through. And we can do the same. We can use the meditation practice of awareness with the sense of its inclining to the deathless, without having to take a position, a final position, on the metaphysics of it. 
So I was sitting in a retreat one time with Ajahn Sumedho, and he talks a lot about awareness and its connection to the deathless. He's kind of in that Thai forest camp. And so I went in for an interview with him, and I've gone through the same questioning, and I said, "Um, Ajahn, there's this one view that awareness really partakes of the deathless, which you find in the Thai forest, and there's this other view that it's all impermanent. There's nothing else besides the impermanence of the five aggregates. How did you reconcile those two in your own practice? And he said, Oh, I never worried about that. (laughs) He said, this practice worked for me. So we can do that too. (laughs) We cannot worry about it. Use the practices, see what suits you, and you don't have to take a metaphysical stand. I don't think metaphysics liberates anyone. But your own practice from a place of um, trust will. Another thing that Ajahn Sumedho said, which I thought was interesting, he said, Western yogis don't trust themselves enough. They need to trust their own experience. This is really true in the practice of awareness because sometimes there are not such clear signposts along the way. You have to trust what's evolving for you, especially in this area. One of the things you can really trust in is the sense of freedom that comes when you open to this empty awareness. As you connect with it, as you recognize it, as you learn to rest within it, there is a growing sense of freedom that comes. That is really trustworthy. Whether you think it's connected to Nibbana or not is up to you. I find it inspiring, but you don't have to feel that. But the freedom is the key point. The way it releases us from entanglement with objects and takes us out of some suffering, that is real. And it's a little bit like, um, I don't know if you've ever been in a neighborhood that had a bread factory, but it smells great. You know, you get near the bread factory and you get that fresh bread baking aroma And you just kind of want to follow the smell to see where the factory is because it gets stronger and stronger. This sense of freedom that comes from empty awareness is like the aroma from a bread factory. (laughs) Just follow that scent and the freedom continues to grow. That is really trustworthy. So we talked this morning about specific ways to um, access this uh, empty knowing. And I just wanted to talk about a couple of other um, practice specifics um, tonight. One is this practice uh, can look a lot like the choiceless attention that we practiced in the instructions from Mahasi Sayadaw. In choiceless attention, we open the mind in a wide way, and we notice each arising at different sense doors. We can notice an in-breath, and we note it. We can notice a sensation, and we note it. We can notice a sound, and we note that. We can notice a mood, we note that. We can notice a thought, and we note that. So the mind is very open, and it's connecting at all six sense doors, one after another. So similarly, when we're practicing awareness, We're very open, and we notice things. Is this the same practice as choiceless attention? No. In choiceless attention, we are still mostly interested in the objects. So when an object arises, let's say a sound, we connect the attention there, and that's the quality of vitaka. We connect the attention there, And we sustain it, we rub it, long enough to really know the nature of that sound. You know, and then we'll recognize it as, you know, a bird or a door or a footstep or whatever. But rubbing the sound is what that practice is about. As we rub it, we know its individual characteristics. We also know its universal characteristics, which are 
It's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and it's not self. That's why we rub it. We want to get to know the object clearly and closely. So there's vitaka, connecting, and then there's vichara, sustaining or rubbing. Just long enough to know each object when it arises. This is the practice of choiceless attention. In the practice of awareness of awareness, we will still notice objects arising. We don't take the step of connecting and sustaining. We let them arise and then just let them go. We don't direct the attention there to land, connect, and rub. We keep the attention on the broad field of awareness. And that's when it feels like things are just kind of coming up, touching a wall, and falling down. Coming up, touching a wall, and falling down. And that's one way that we keep from getting entangled with those objects, with those sense phenomena. Another question that came um, up in the hall about awareness practice is basically, how do you know if you're doing it right? And this is kind of the, the nub of the matter. It's hard to know in the beginning because it, it's not so clear. And this is where it's really helpful to take one of those techniques for connecting with awareness, you know, turning the mind back, asking who is looking, making the statement um, aware of awareness, or simply the statement, am I aware? The question, am I aware? Take what you get, and then trust in that. We have to trust in something here. Trust in that and see where it goes. Now, as you start to rest in that, one of the ways to check if it's authentic is, are you still aware of impermanence? In other words, with the open awareness, are you still knowing objects arising and passing? You don't connect and sustain to them, but is that within your field of experience? Because you could get in this open space and kind of go into a trance where the senses shut down and you're sort of wrapped up and cut off. But in the openness, you should still be knowing things coming and going. So if that's true, feels wide, expansive, somewhat settled, but you know things are coming and going, that's a good sign. So we talked this morning about um, adding, adding emptiness to the seeing. You want to see awareness, And you also want to see emptiness. And then to see that they're joined. They're not two things, but they're one thing merged or indivisible. So at first, I think I mentioned, I had to reflect a lot on the emptiness piece. The awareness piece was pretty clear. I was knowing things. I was aware. The emptiness piece was a little harder to find. But it's worth investigating so that you can get some confidence. Because eventually you want to look and see emptiness and awareness with one glance. So at first you put these techniques in, it takes a few seconds. You know, you say, am I aware or aware of awareness or turning back to awareness? It takes a few seconds. But as you get more skilled in it, it's very immediate. You just have the intention to see it and it comes, the emptiness and the awareness together. So that's where you want to be aiming your practice, is to see the emptiness and the awareness with a glance. And if the emptiness is um, ripe, mature, um, full, there won't be a self in it. That means there won't be uh, grasping, there won't be a big grasping in it. That's what this openness kind of reveals, is the absence of a center that's pulled together by contraction. So when there's the opening to emptiness and awareness, it should feel spacious and not contracted. That means the 
there's not selfing, there's not grasping. It means that kalesas aren't there. Greed, aversion, delusion are not there. And therefore, the mind is getting purified. As you rest in that place, it's getting purified. And then when you can rest in empty awareness is when the beautiful qualities of the heart come forth as responsiveness. So this brings up a question. Do all beings have empty awareness? Part of the nature of mind, right? So it's in this Buddha nature is in all beings. The emptiness, the cognizance, capacity for responsiveness. Are all beings manifesting beautiful qualities of heart and mind all the time? No. But as practitioners, you are developing this skill. In this approach, what makes for the difference? All beings have empty awareness. What makes the difference? Yogis recognize it, and uninstructed worldlings don't. You recognize it as the nature of your own mind. Those who haven't been instructed don't. That's what makes the difference. That's what opens up the door to responsiveness. So it's said that there is one nature for beings, but there are two paths. One path simply acts out one's habits of mind and karmic patterns because there is not the clear seeing. The other path recognizes the nature of mind and unlocks the door to all the beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And that's what leads us out of suffering and into freedom. So it's all about this recognition. It's all about recognizing the awareness first, and then the union of emptiness and awareness. That's what unlocks the door. So when we went through the techniques this morning, we talked about turn to awareness and recognize it. Start to add in there, recognize the empty awareness. See emptiness and awareness together and then rest. And then the fourth step is release. As you're resting, you don't need to try to make it stay longer. You don't need to try to prolong it. If you did, that would be a form of desire. And what we're trusting in, in this practice approach in particular, is the purification of heart and mind that comes from resting in the nature of mind. We're trusting the nature of mind to do the work. So our only work is to turn and recognize it. And we we can't even say that we do the recognizing. We turn and recognition either happens or it doesn't. All we can do is turn. But as we get more familiar with it, recognition happens more and more often. Then once you've recognized, just rest. You let go of effort, let go of trying, let go of doing. Just rest, and in that you're trusting this pure nature to do the work of the path for you, on you. So it used to be when I was starting out, I would say to myself, um, okay, I'll rest and I'll stay there as long as I can. But then I realized that wasn't the right way to say it. And then I changed it to, I will stay as long as it stays. Because it's up to the thing and not up to me. So you don't need to make an effort to stay longer. But then you have to be realistic. When the mind wanders, you have to notice that. And then you have to turn again. Then you have to take up the technique again. When you move out of the recognition, you need to turn the mind again. Recognize again. Rest again. Release Again, that's the practice, the ongoing practice. 
And the more you do this, you find that the resting lasts longer. And sometimes it can seem, you know, somewhat stable for a little while. And so the training, really, as it's described by the masters, is to stabilize the resting. This is from Tulka Urgen Rinpoche, who was a, a great Dzogchen master in the last century. The way to be enlightened is to train in recognizing mind essence and become stable in this recognition. The moment of recognizing mind essence, that itself is the awakened state. The three kilesas have no power at that moment. When we get fully used to recognizing the nature of mind, the kilesas have no foothold any longer because the nature of mind is pure. So this is what we trust in. Connect, recognize, rest. So you'll notice as you do this practice, it will get more and more refined. And there are some events, there are some meditation experiences or approaches that I would call the near relatives of resting in the nature of awareness. There are things that are close but could be refined further. So one is when there are a lot of distracting thoughts. You you don't exactly put your full attention on them so you're not losing touch with the present moment, but there's this line of subconscious chatter that goes on even while you're resting. So if that happens, it can be skillful Drop the awareness practice for a moment. Turn the attention to the thoughts. Make the thoughts the primary object. Because what you'll see is thoughts thrive on inattention. It's just the way, have you ever noticed, you know, you walk into a a kitchen in some southern climates and you turn on the light and all the cockroaches scurry away. (laughs) As long as the dark is there, the cockroaches can play around. So it's kind of like that with thoughts. As long as you don't shine the light on them, they're happy to frisk away, (laughs) pretending they're not there. But when you turn the light of mindfulness onto them, they go, oops, I'm not really here. And they scatter to the corners. So just check it. Sometimes when there's a subconscious chatter, put mindfulness on the thoughts. Now, another thing I found myself getting into, and I don't know if you're getting into this or not, when I would be um, inclining to open to the vastness of awareness, I would put it in front of me and to the sides, but I wouldn't bring my body into it. When you open up to the vastness of awareness, include your body. It's there in the open space of awareness also. So don't disconnect from the body. And one way you can do this is as you um, approach the meditation, feel yourself in the body first. Then turn to awareness and see if the body can come along with you. So don't make this just a space practice, but also make it an embodied practice. Now the other side of that is that sometimes um, I would find myself actually focusing on experiences in the body. And it was a little bit like, you know, we talked this morning about how the object and the consciousness come up together and we can be with one or the other. So I might have been intending to be with the awareness, but after a while I found I was more with the sensations of the body. And I was losing touch with the awareness because the sensations were kind of um, comfortable. You know, the breath was comfortable, the body sensations were comfortable. So I had kind of let the attention go more into the sensations and into the knowing. So just check if it's like that and keep returning the attention to the knowing. I mean, it's not a bad practice to be with breath, to be with body. That's good mindfulness practice. So it's not like these are unwholesome states, but it's just a little bit different than the awareness practice. And you want to give yourself a chance to check out the awareness practice. Another way that it can miss a little bit is to think that awareness 
is a destination separate from phenomena. It's not. Awareness includes phenomena. So sometimes you think, oh, I'll just go out in some place that phenomena don't get to. And that's really awareness. That's a kind of attempt to dissociate, to disconnect from phenomena. So that's why it's kind of important to see when you're resting in awareness, you're still noticing objects. You notice them coming and going. So you're not separate. Awareness and objects are always there together. Consciousness comes with objects. Awareness is the field of consciousness. So they come together. But then the question comes up, okay, I feel my awareness out here. What object am I aware of? Space. Sometimes we're aware of physical space. That's what, that's the object that's being met with awareness. So awareness always comes with objects until some altered state happens. There are altered states where that changes, but 99.9999% of the time, awareness comes with objects. Another way that um, sometimes people misunderstand the practice is they say, oh yeah, I'm doing that practice that you talk about, but I'm just being. I'm doing the practice of just being. That's what you're talking about, right? No. Dogs and cats and babies are really good at just being. But in dogs and cats and babies, the recognition of empty awareness is not happening. The light of mindfulness is not turned on. The light of wisdom is not turned on. So there's more going on here than just being. The key is the awareness. The awareness is is smart. The wisdom comes in through the cognizance, through the awareness. And that's really what we're growing. So just being doesn't really do it, either in mindfulness practice or in awareness practice. And then one other thing that comes in is exactly what was mentioned in a question this morning about feeling that there's a center to the awareness, which is in the head. This is a really common experience that probably all of us have or have had. And it's just our conditioning coming through that we identify with, basically we identify with consciousness and construct a sense of I am the observer. And that I tends to get located in the center of the head. So it's very deeply conditioned um, it's a rare moment, I think, when that isn't present to some extent. But as meditation deepens, as wisdom deepens, as we explore that sense, as we look at locating the center in other places, we realize that it's just a construction. And there can be moments when we're free of it. One thing that can be interesting to try in playing with this, don't get the sense that you're wrong if you have a sense of an observer, it's just part of the karmic conditioning playing out. The same way we still have greed, aversion, delusion, the same way we still have hope and fear. It's not a, it's not a huge deal. As meditation deepens, it can change. But if you want to play with it, one of the things you can do is take the awareness, wherever it's being directed, and turn it toward the observer. And just ask, oh, who's looking? And then you'll see if there's anything there or not, you know, perhaps. Okay, and in the last minutes, I want to talk a little bit about integrating the practice we're doing now, the awareness practice, with our earlier practices of breath and metta, or any other practices you're doing, a choiceless attention, or body sweeping, or compassion practice. And we'll, call, we'll put these all in the category of object-oriented practices. These are practices where we're bringing our attention to objects, whether it be the breath or sensations or metaphrases. But we're moving now into a phase where we're putting our attention into formless practices. The awareness practice is a formless practice. 
you will find it really helpful in this last part of the retreat to work with integrating these two types of practice. They're both really, really helpful, really, really valuable. So what is the value of an object-oriented practice? It gives a really good place to collect the mind around, to collect the attention. An object gives something for concentration to develop around. And the purpose of concentration is stability, and the purpose of stability is insight. So when you're with the formless practice, what's the risk? Moving into space can lead to spacing out. There's not a clear enough focus sometimes, and the mind goes off thinking, thinking, thinking. Drifting, drifting, drifting. And as we said early, distracting thoughts are not just a distraction. They are the feeding ground for the kilesas. When we go into distracting thoughts, we go into past and future. We go into hope and regret. We go into fear and worry. So these excursions come with a price. The price is they stir us up. So, when you are with the awareness practice and you find your mind getting distracted and lost in thought, that's a good time to come back and collect with an object-oriented practice. It could be any. Breath, body, choiceless attention, body scan, metta, compassion, any of those. Once the attention has gotten stabilized again and you feel you're pretty present, open up again to empty awareness. So in these days of the retreat, have as part of your intention, I'm going to learn how to integrate these two. I'm going to know when I need to be with objects and when I can really go formless and still stay present. The staying present is the key thing. So just um, one other point about this formless practice. When you open up to true emptiness and awareness, it happens in a place without grasping. That's part of the emptiness. The self is not being constructed out of grasping at that point. And then from time to time, of course, grasping will come back again. That's just what we do. So deeply conditioned. So you can make, in a way, a focus of your practice. Are you in a place of openness, emptiness, and awareness, which you'll feel is a free, relatively free place, ease, peace, settledness? And then notice when the grasping happens. You feel it as a physical contraction, taking hold, fixating, obsessing, clinging. And so your practice can be a noticing of, is there openness or is there contraction? Freedom or clinging? Clinging always leads to suffering, gross or subtle. So that can become an interesting exploration. You just watch, the mind's going to go back and forth so many times. Openness, grasping. Openness, grasping. We can, we can learn from that. Okay, I just want to close with a quote from uh, Patril Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan yogi and teacher from the 19th century. And he summed up the practice very nicely. Don't dwell on the past. Don't invite the future. Don't alter the innate wakefulness. Don't fear phenomena. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. (laughs) Let's just sit for a minute.
there is this unborn, unbecome, unproduced, unconditioned. If there were not, there would be no escape from what is born, become, produced, conditioned. But because there is, there is an escape from what is born, become, produced, conditioned. So we have about 30 minutes for walking practice and then the last sitting of the day with the chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.